Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Understanding the Fine Print, the who, when, and what to do about ARIA in patients with Alzheimer's disease, primary care module. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, MER, and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Dr. James Galvin, and welcome to the primary care module of Understanding the Fine Print, the who, when, and what to do about amyloid-related imaging abnormalities in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This activity is part of a series of six distinct activities, each targeting the commonalities and unique aspects of ARIA recognition and management across four specialties, neurology, radiology, emergency medicine, and primary care. In part one, our panel of diverse specialists gave a background of the key features and implications of ARIA that are relevant to clinicians across all these specialties. In this module, we'll focus on the how and why ARIA may present in a primary care setting such that clinicians can be ready to identify and act on ARIA when it occurs. Joining me today, we have our primary care representative, Dr. Charles Vega, clinical professor of family medicine and associate dean at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, as well as neurologist, Dr. John Toledo, assistant professor of neurology at the Nance National Alzheimer's Center at Houston Methodist. So I'm, I'm really excited to begin this conversation. Uh, uh, Chuck, welcome back, and it's good to talk to you. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. All right. And, and John, great to see you. Thank you for having me, Jim. Always a pleasure to be here with you. So we're going to focus on a couple of things here today, and um, uh, really thinking about the ARIA recognition and management and focusing on the role of primary care. So, so Chuck, Lead us through us. What, what are we going to? What do we need to talk about when we're we're meeting with our patients? Well, I, I really appreciate the chance to discuss this with both of you because this is the we're rarely going to have a time where we get to you know talk about uh, disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment and the risk of aria um, together like this. But hopefully, we'll provide some uh, some guide path today to what is expected in primary care. I think one of the the main things that primary care needs to understand is we are going to be very supportive in encouraging patients to get the routine MRI monitoring. So uh, that is part and parcel of this disease-modifying therapy. And so uh, so therefore, and, and it's difficult for patients to always recall what their schedule is. They, you know, they rarely are uh, dealing with um, cognitive dysfunction as, as their sole disorder, uh, and they have multiple appointments, multiple uh, ancillary studies to get done. So we have to help keep them on schedule. And we also have to be supportive of recognizing symptoms. One, preloading the information into patients as to what they could expect as symptoms of ARIA so they know to make the call when they develop uh, new symptoms or signs. Um, and then in addition, we respond to those as well, because there's quite a range of symptoms. Um, most cases of ARIA, as we discuss, will not uh, be symptomatic, but about a quarter will. And so therefore, uh, we're going to get into that in this discussion. And again, how to um, react appropriately to those symptoms uh, is something that I think is best managed between the uh, neurologist and the primary care uh, provider, but we both have a role to play. All right. Um, and I just want to point out again um, is that, you know, all of these data 
are really being collected through this patient registry, which is really important because this is post-approval. Um, and so the Alzheimer's Network for Treatment and Diagnostics, or ALSNET, are, are really trying to capture this real-world data that's going to help you know, providers across multiple specialties really understand ARIA and its impact on, on patient care. So we're going to do this by talking about a case, um, and I think that's always sort of the best way to, to, to have a lively discussion. Um, and, and so let, let's meet our, our patient. It's a 70-year-old uh, female with a history of MCI due to AD. She received her fifth dose of aducanumab seven days ago. Now she comes to your office with an acute onset of headache and slight dizziness. Just quickly reviewing her medical history, she has type 2 diabetes, she has arthritis, hyperlipidemia, hypertension. Um, and the MRI that was done prior to the fifth dose uh, showed three microhemorrhages, which was unchanged from her baseline. So Chuck, let me pose this to you first. What are some of the clinical suspicions in this patient? And what kind of information might you need to further that assessment? So I think it's best to uh, keep your differential broad at first. Um, we want to uh, do a general headache assessment, and that means getting a good history on the character of the pain, what makes it better or worse, particularly looking for uh, red flags. Uh, such as a headache that's uh, worse with exertion or associated with any kind of neurological signs. Um, and then we want to get a, a pattern for headaches for her as well. Um, is this a, a typical headache she's had for a long time, um, or is this something that's new? And it sounds uh, like the, the onset is acute, which is automatically raising a little bit of a warning for me, um, and that she also has accompanying dizziness. So those are two things that um, that I'm concerned with right off the bat, but I, I don't jump right to the idea, well, this is probably ARIA. So, Chuck, at this point, might you reach out to your consulting neurologist, or I think, it, or at this point, are you still handling this yourself? I'd like to evaluate her. So, I'd like to her to be seen uh, right away. Um, I think the best thing would be because that way we get the, some of the objective evidence as well, right? Um, we do a lot of telehealth these days, but this one might be not the best case for, for doing telehealth. I really want to know how her blood pressure is doing. I want to do a neurological exam. And, uh, and so, uh, it, I think that for now, I, before I, you know, make that call, I probably want to have her, uh, seen. And, and just get a, a better sense of just how uh, severe this headache is and, and then put it on my differential diagnosis, start moving things around up and down uh, based on that. And certainly if I suspect ARIA, yes, I'm going to involve the treating neurologist. Okay, great. So you're taking your history. Tell me about the things that you're looking for. What are the signs and symptoms of ARIA? Right. So uh, it's not an unusual case for ARIA because headache happens to be the most uh, significant symptom in ARIA. It's 47% of cases of ARIA have headache that are symptomatic. But remember, only 26% of cases are actually symptomatic. 74% are not. She also has another classic symptom, which is uh, dizziness. And dizziness, as you well know, uh, that's a very broad differential diagnosis. The fact that it's coming on together with a headache does make me believe this is probably more than, say, a tension headache or a migraine headache and some of the more common types of headache that I might see. Even a uh, headache associated with a poorly controlled hypertension, rarely do I see those two symptoms occur simultaneously. 
but I have seen it as well. I have, I've, I've seen it just because they are two incredibly common uh, symptoms, not just in neurology, but in general practice as well. And, but, you know, I think that if she developed more confusion or an altered mental status, um, you know, that is, that's a much more concerning, um, uh, sign whenever you see it, uh, regardless of the patient's status with headache. And then you add in, uh, treatment with a drug like aducanumab, uh, it's going to be, um, you know, very much a situation where, you know, that will take prompt evaluation to, uh, to do neuroimaging and see what's going on. Yeah. So this is going to be, as Chuck said, where, bringing that patient in, getting a good history, doing a good physical and neurologic exam, nothing's ever going to replace that, uh, right, Chuck? I mean, nothing's ever going to take away from actually laying hands on the patient and, and, and doing a good physical. Right. And if we're doing a telehealth appointment, and especially if she has altered mental status, I mean, that's a clear indication where we're stopping that appointment. She needs to go directly to the emergency department. So, if we're going to talk about ARIA, we have to think about what the risk of developing ARIA is. So, so John, lead us through this. So what are some of the things that increase the risk of ARIA? Yeah, so this we have now experienced through a different medications that have gone through clinical trials, and there are some other clinical trials that consider other treatments. And one that especially stands out is the APOE genotype. So, it depends uh, the number of uh, APOE epsilon uh, four copies uh, that a patient has, and here we see that although the three different treatments, two that have been approved and one that is still under investigation, they have different rates of area E. There is a clear increased risk as patients are heterozygous with one copy or they are homozygous with two copies of E four, and so this can increase the risk by six times of presenting ARIA-E. And if we would look at the percentages of ARIA-8s, which as opposed to edema is a hemorrhage, we will see also an increased risk with multiple copies. Also, when clinical trials have evaluated or titrated doses, a greater dose has been associated with greater risk. But at this point, once the medications get approved, there is like a standard dosing. Also, having some baseline microhemorrhages in the MRI increases the risk. And actually, in the recommendation guidelines, having more than four microhemorrhages can be considered a reason not to start this treatment. Older AIDS and infarcts or older hemorrhages also increase the risk and might be considerations not to start this treatment. But something to consider also is that most of the area AIDS and area episodes are going to be asymptomatic, and most of the presentations are going to be mild. So we have to have a threshold, a low threshold to consider this uh, in our differential diagnosis when a patient on these treatments has these kind of symptoms. Yeah, I'm looking at this uh, these list of things that increase the risk, and I want to focus on this first point, though, because, uh, Chuck, in, in clinical practice, you, you don't check APOE genotypes, do you? Well, that, that's great. We're definitely thinking alike because this, this could be something of a paradigm shift. Right now, I don't know of any broad recommendations that call that we should be screening for uh, APOE alleles, um, even though it's, it's fairly common. I think it's like 13% of uh, adults carry uh, you know, these alleles. So, so therefore, um, but does this change uh, the, the way we initiate workup? Is this something that we start doing in the broad population? Maybe not, but what about patients who develop cognitive impairment? 
uh, when we're thinking at that initial stage. I think about when when I um, diagnose uh, cognitive impairment, I send off a battery of labs. I get chemistries. I get thyroid levels. I get B12 levels. I get a CBC. And should I also be thinking about getting APOE with the thinking that many of these cases eventually are diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease and they could eventually be considered for treatment. So so would it be more efficient in that initial battery to to order APOE to stratify patients' uh, risk of uh, potentially getting ARIA on, on disease-modifying therapy? That's a, that's a good question. I, I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Would that be valuable to you as neurologists to have that established when um, when the patient comes in, because the other thing with APOE is that it's it's fraught. Um, you know, it has implications for not just the patient, but of course their family as well. I think in my case, I am considering uh, testing when somebody uh, wants to go forward with uh, with these treatments. Yeah, I think uh, these are really interesting questions, and we could spend hours just talking about this. I, I do think what Chuck said is true. It can start to change the way we're thinking about practicing. And I'm not sure the best recommendation at the moment, but but I do think it's something we're all going to have to think about. So let's now talk about some of the dosing and monitoring of the DMTs. So, so John, take us through this, because they're all a little different, right? Yeah, so they, are, they are a bit different. First, we are going to get a, a baseline MRI, uh, because when we monitor patients, and, and you will see that there are different schedules, uh, for the atacumumab and, and lecanemab uh, treatment guidelines, we are going to be doing during the follow-up uh, MRIs. And for in case of atacumumab, we are going to do it uh, before the fifth, seventh, ninth, and twelfth infusion. And in the case of lecanemab, it's going to be before the fifth, seventh, and fourteenth. And as we discussed, uh, patients who are uh, a biopsy for carriers, we may consider doing additional scans. And what we are going to be looking for is for differences uh, between the baseline MRI and the follow-up MRI, because as we discussed, uh, there might be already some uh, baseline changes uh, that we need to consider and and subtract uh, when we evaluate changes. Uh, Also, something to consider is that this is the timing of the MRIs is based on the infusion visits and the time between infusions is different. Uh, other common app is uh, on a monthly schedule, whereas uh, lecanemab is every two weeks. So when does ARIA occur? Well, let's let's think about this a little bit. Um, so if we look at the relationship between ARIA and the exposure to disease-modifying therapies, uh, the fact is most ARIA events occur early phases of targeted therapies. And so the likelihood of ARIA occurs very close to when the initiation is, and the longer term that you've been treating, the less likely ARIA is to occur. So that period of greatest risk with an approved DMT, we really want to make sure we're looking for ARIA. Um, So during aducanumab, it's going to be during the first eight months of treatment. For lecanemab, it's going to be during the first three and a half months of treatment, about 14 weeks of treatment. And these are for the two approved medicines. There's also an investigational drug, denanumab, and most ARIA occurred within three months. So at the very least, when you start these things, we're going to be doing imaging at least for the first three months, depending on the agent, and going as far as eight months uh, if someone's an aducanumab. 
So let's think about this particular patient. After that fifth dose, they're having symptoms. So now we have to think about what we're going to do about this patient right here. So we have symptoms of aria. We have timing of symptoms in relation to her dosing. Um, what do we think? What, what are we doing now? Well, I think uh, we should go forward with uh, getting an MRI scan and to, to be able to assess if, if this is something related to the, to the treatment or not and something that we actually may need to modify our, our treatment and, and future steps. Okay. So, Chuck, lead us through. Primary care, what do we do? Yeah. So again, I, I'd want, it's, it's always hard to you know judge a case from a thumbnail, but it's definitely leaning that way. I agree that we're going to require an MRI for neuroimaging. So yeah, I would talk to neurology and I would go ahead and order that MRI on a stat basis and talk to whom I have to talk to so that they understand why it needs to be scheduled right away. And if unfortunately, if that can happen, sometimes it happens when I'm seeing a patient at 4.40, if she came in at 4.45 p.m. and I call the radiology center and nobody's picking up the phone, unfortunately, she'd have to go to the emergency department. I'm not sure that clinically that I would say that's my first option at this point uh, without some, without more you know, findings, I guess, maybe on exam or something. She doesn't necessarily need to go to the emergency department at this time. But, um, but yeah, just not being able to get the expedient MRI could be a reason to start to the emergency department. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I think you hit it on the nail. You, you have a plan. You have to figure out how to implement that plan and what's your plan B, C, D, et cetera. Um, but also, you know, the severity of the symptoms really do come into play. We have to, we have to really consider, like, how severe those symptoms are. Um, so what does that look like? Tell us. So, you know, clinically, how do we say is this mild or moderate or severe? Right. So I, I think that when we look at the, the category of more mild symptoms, these are the symptoms we manage every day in primary care, and I'm sure you as well in neurology. So it's the headaches, the dizziness, visual disturbances. But I, I'd put a caveat in there. When patients complain about visual disturbances, is this due to the cataract that you've had a you know gradual uh, diminishing of your central vision over the past two years, or is this new and acute? So I think it's always good to uh, to just get a little bit of background because it's those new acute onset of symptoms that's uh, really concerning. I think infusion, of course, you're you're focused on uh, individuals here um, who have cognitive impairment. So they're, they're at times going to be confused. But again, we're looking for that sharp step off. And it again, maybe not just, uh, you know, aria E, aria H. I mean, there could be, you know, more significant bleed or something else that's going on. And hence the, ne the need for uh, neuroimaging. Um, as you move towards more, um, uh, more severe symptoms, people can develop uh, abnormalities with their gait. There could be falls. Uh, they could have nausea or vomiting from increased intracranial pressure. And by the time you get to, you know, partial blindness with agnosias and, and seizures, that's a very severe level. And I think it's very clear those patients need to be seen in emergency uh, immediately for appropriate care. Yeah, and I think, um, I think you laid it out really nice is that the common things occur commonly and you're seeing them a lot. And it's the pattern and the temporal relationship to right. what else is going on that's really key. But those more severe symptoms are, are really going to start to trigger um, a response in you that, you know, you may need to activate emergency services much more so than for someone who's just walking in with a headache. 
Um, so I, I think that's a that's a great discussion. So um, you know, can go back to our case now. You have a clinical suspicion. How are you putting this all together based on what you're seeing? I think the most efficient care for, for this patient, because our emergency departments are very full, so I try to use them very judiciously. And and because they're overwhelmed, honestly, that you may not always get the most expedient care, um, which is uh, sad but true. Uh, and so, therefore, I think the, the best care for this patient is talk to the neurologist who knows her. And this is worth, you know, a phone call over to the office so they are aware and then ordering that set MRI. So now you want to be on the same page, expecting to get results on an urgent basis. So that same day, so that you can take action. So now, John, I want to turn to you. So we talked about clinical severity. Uh, let's talk about what we see on MRI. So here we have this uh, nice table that is summarizing uh, the different type of imaging findings that we have. Uh, on the one axis and on the other axis, uh, we are quantifying the severity. And one of the things uh, we may have not mentioned before is that a CAT scan is not going to be able to identify these changes. And that's one of the reasons uh, why patients who are uh, not able to get MRIs are not considered for this treatment because we won't be able to assess and monitor them adequately. Going back to the table, what we see is two types of area. So this area E, which stands for edema, what we are going to see is white hyperintensity in this T2 flare MRI. And what this is showing is the basogenic edema. Another finding in the sulci between the, the different brain folds is effusion. And so what you will see is also like a hyperintensity between them. The other type of finding that we have is area H for hemorrhage. And again, we're going to be looking at two spaces. So one is in the brain or in the parenchyma, where we will see these microhemorrhages, which are less than one centimeter, and they look at these round or oval dark spots in like sequences that are T2 star, GRE, or WI, which are specially designed to see the, the bleeds. And also we will see superficial siderosis which is present in the in the soul side. And so once we have this, what we are going to see is the extent and the number of lesions. And you will see that there is some numbers that are repeated here. So 1, 5, and 10 is a number that is going to be helpful to remember. So for the mild edema, we will see one small site that is less than 5 centimeter in, in the longest uh, diameter. For moderate, we will have either multiple sites or a medium-sized size, which is going to be 5 to 10. And a severe one is when we have at least one lesion over 10 centimeters on the scan with this edema or effusion. For the microhemorrhages, it's going to be mild if we have four or less. Again, when we have 5 to 9, it's going to be moderate. And when we have 10 or more, it's going to be severe. And in terms of new events of superficial siderosis, is going to be one, two, or three or more. And we will see why we are doing or going through this exercise because based on the imaging findings and uh, the presence of symptoms is going to be the way we decide how to act next or what we need to do. Tell us what we're going to do. When do, when do we stop these medicines? Yes. So here what we have is... Uh, First, we have a, a gotten the history, we have examined the patient, we have the MRI. And so let's go on the right side 
of this algorithm. So we, we have a patient who is asymptomatic, but has area which is mild. In those cases, we can continue the treatment and monitor monthly to evaluate for changes. And then based on resolution or progression, we, we will act accordingly. Then we have the cases where there is a moderate or severe area or E or a mild area H. And here we are going to suspend the treatment and we are going to continue doing monthly MRIs. The interpretation of the MRIs is going to be different for the edema or the hemorrhages. In terms of the hemorrhages, we are looking for no new events or stabilization. So we don't want to see new hemorrhages, but the ones that are there are going to remain. This is very different from the edema, where we expect that within four months, four out of five patients should have a resolution of or disappearance. There is another situation where we have asymptomatic patients with mild symptoms and mild area E on the MRI. And in those cases, recommendations are not that clear and you need to use your clinical judgment. And so you can continue the treatment with monthly MRI or you may suspend, monitor, and then decide to resume treatment later. Since this patient has mild symptoms, what path might she take? Yes, so uh, in a patient with mild symptoms and a mild MRI, uh, in general, uh, the practice will be always uh, in discussion with the patient and the family about the possible risk and benefit uh, to continue the treatment and uh, having a more uh, intense uh, monitoring with monthly MRIs. So let's continue with our patient. So now as you're doing the more detailed evaluation, patient now is exhibiting some gait disturbances and you're trying to do some cognitive testing and, and they just can't do it. They really seem to have this confusion. And now while confusion may not always be a severe symptom, the fact is that you're noting that it's severe. So what do we do now? Well, I might, I may get a call about this or, or it certainly sounds like it's in my clinical evaluations. Like, whoa, this is, uh, this is more severe than I thought. You know, nobody mentioned anything about gait disturbances and clear confusion on trying to fill out, you know, fairly straightforward forms and assessments. Um, this is this is a downgrade. When would I not send a patient like this to the emergency department? But particularly in the setting of uh, being treated with disease modifying therapy um, in that time frame where we know aria can occur. Um, this is something that needs to go to the emergency department. We are not just talking about getting a, a diagnostic picture, but in, but possibly initiating prompt therapeutics as well, which could you know really improve her outcomes here uh, before she has um, you know a, a major and more irreversible type of event. If you're in a resource poor setting, getting an MRI after hours can be a, a true challenge. Um, so that's that's another thing to consider, and maybe have a plan. Um, in the and remember, this is a, a rare case, as as you know, seventy four percent of RA cases are asymptomatic. But um, but just have a, a plan for when this does occur, if there should be these more severe symptoms, how the patient can be transported and evaluated to a center that can manage her adequately. Um, so I, I think it's it's you know it doesn't mean just because you're in a a rural or very resource-poor setting that you can't use disease-modifying therapy, but you want to think ahead and have a plan as well. I agree with you. I think that these are things we need to address more urgently 
So, well, let's focus on now what we're going to do should this happen, right? So, you know, does ARIA require additional treatments beyond just suspension or continuation? Well, I think it depends on what you're seeing. So for those severe symptomatic cases, um, what would you do? Well, the recommendation is to use high-dose glucocorticoids, so IV methylprednisolone, one gram per day for five days, and this is followed by an oral prednisone uh, uh, treatment, which could be tapered over weeks to months, depending on, you know, what you're seeing. And I, and I think this is something that could be done, you know, in the primary care setting, not the maybe not the initial IV treatment, but for sure the the longer term follow up and the tapering. Mm-hmm. It all could be done in the primary care setting. Would you agree, Chuck? Oh, for sure. For sure. So we need to coordinate. There has to be a good handoff. Uh, usually these patients are going to be inpatients coming to the outpatient setting. Uh, but no, they, I think that we certainly could manage a, a presence on taper. Okay. Now, this didn't happen in this particular case, but maybe for one of the more severe symptoms that have been found is, is either epileptiform activity on EEG or actual seizures, um, then the recommendation is this person's probably going to be on anticonvulsives, right? And, and, and Chuck, this might be the case where um, some primary care doctors will feel very comfortable starting an anticonvulsant, and other ones are going to work in partnership with their consulting neurologist. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's a case. I, I'd certainly prefer, especially a new case uh, with ARIA, and it was severe enough to cause uh, seizures, you know, having somebody to touch base with a neurology uh, is important. But this was, again, where if patients are relatively stable, telehealth could be a great thing, both for uh, consultation with neurology, but also for uh, direct patient care as well. Right. And the world has changed. We really have to think about how we're going to incorporate all these interesting uh, changes to practice uh, that, you know, weren't really open to us, uh, you know, even three years ago. So um, this was a great discussion, really was. I, I want to tell everybody who's watching to make sure you check out the closing module of the activity for a lively multi-specialty discussion on the collaborative management of ARIA. So Chuck, I want to thank you for this participation in this conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. I hope the audience learned a lot. No, thank you. It was great. Really appreciate it. Uh, and, and John, thank you for giving your expert uh, opinions on the from the neurology side. I think this really added to the interactiveness of the conversation. Thank you very much, Jim, for for having me here to discuss this very interesting topic. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, MER, and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.